Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing this fine Wednesday night at 6.22 p.m.? I am doing great, Bill Real. How are you doing? I am doing excellent, my friend. Uh, we've got a great show prepared tonight, but we uh, we were talking a little bit beforehand and uh, wanted to make note of something, which is last week uh, in our episode, we always try to keep our phone calls kind of short and concise, try to get as many of them in. And of course, you and I are doing the show live. We want to get home to our family and and dinner and stuff too. And so several listeners pointed out that I was perhaps inconsiderate as I cut off the first and second caller had some deep personal stories. And uh, I'm always nervous inside of me trying to figure out how to handle those calls. And uh, a couple of caller, a couple listeners uh, made note that they thought we had maybe done some harm. I had done some harm cutting those calls off. And I simply wanted to say to both of those callers that uh, maybe as much as is anyone in this space, I recognize that there is a lot of trauma being handed out by unhealthy systems. And I, uh, I sure as heck don't want to be adding to that trauma. I don't want to be diminishing uh, someone's story. I think people's personal stories are important. And uh, I just want to apologize to both of those callers. And going forward, I'm going to try to do a better job of recognizing uh, maybe the calls that need to be left alone to go a little longer. And I'm also going to acknowledge I'll probably make this mistake again, but want to at least say sorry to the audience and uh, and recognize that, uh, you know, I think both of us, but I'm speaking personally of me in this moment, that uh, we'll just keep trying to be better and better. You're a good man, Bill Real. All I can say is that Bill Real is doing the technological equivalent of walking and chewing gum and juggling and spinning plates and doing a host of other things at the same time from his position. I don't have to do anything except sit here and wear my Marvel Comics t-shirts tonight sporting Venom a Venom t-shirt. So, but if I were in Bill's position and having to do the phone calls, I'm sure that I would have done a much worse job up to this point than Bill Real has. So I want to give him credit where credit's due. Thank you. And and just to note to listeners, we're all, we're all different kinds of humans. And I really am kind of a, a one-track mind when it comes to all this IT stuff. If there's multiple things to do, I kind of mess a lot of things up. But I, I tend to, if I'm given one project at a time or one task at a time, I tend to do that really well, but I don't, I don't multitask well. So how many people are viewing right now, Bill? 183. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll see here how this kind of, kind of turns up, but um, I want to put something up on the screen, RFM, and mm-hmm. see maybe if you recognize uh, this, does blueprint, that's a blueprint, that's a blueprint. Now let me zoom in a little bit and see if we can, uh, uh, oh, that's quite a building. What's that say down there in the bottom left? Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, let me, let me make it a little bigger. Then. Hang on a second here. Let me All make right. it a little bigger. Um, level third floor. Okay, so it's a third floor plan. Yeah, yeah. And then over here on the right, what does that say on the far right there? Okay, hang on a second here because I want to turn myself over like, okay, Deseret Peak, Utah. Tem- oh, this is a temple. This is the third floor of a temple. It's blueprints. What's that is highlighted that- thing there, my friend? Well, I will tell you. 
that this is a room that's off of the main ceiling room. And uh, last, it was two weeks ago, we talked about the second anointing and the relationship it has to the ceiling room per the recounts, recounting uh, that Tom Phillips gave of his second anointing. And that they went to the ceiling room and then there was a little room that was off the ceiling room, which had uh, a sink in it or something, a place to get water, right? Uh, which you need for a second anointing because there's a washing component to it as well, the washing of the feet. And then we received a, a message that we talked about last week at the top of the show from an individual who will go nameless, who is involved in the temple constructions, who confirmed that account. And then from a completely separate source, this week we received this blueprint from the third floor of the temple going up in Tooele, I believe it's under construction. And lo and behold, here we've got the ceiling room, which is right there in the middle at the bottom. There are, of course, several ceiling rooms, right? But this one, I think, is the main ceiling room. And right off of it, and this is what's highlighted by yellow, is a little room. You see that door? There's a door that leads into the ceiling room, and the door's behind the chairs, isn't it? The door is behind the chairs. And I don't know if this is like a door that looks like the, the wall, <laughs> you know, it's like a library. It's got books on it and opens up. I have no idea how secret the door is, but it's made to be behind the chairs. You open it up, you go in there, and it's not a restroom. It is a room that has nothing in it per the specs except for a sink. And you can see the sink on the left side of the room. And it's the long diagonal thing which shows the sink and then the circle in it, which is the sink itself. I'm sorry, the long diagonal thing is the um, the counter in which the sink sets. Yeah, and this only makes sense, right? If to have a sink room off of a ceiling room and a waiting room um, appears to be the only explanation is, and it matches all the other data, is that this is a room needed to perform the second anointing. Right, and if you go up a little bit and to the left, uh, if, once again, look at that room. There is no toilet in there. There is no shower. There's only a sink, all right? Yeah. And for comparison purposes, you go up a little bit more to the left, Keep going. See, there's some more ceiling rooms. Now, up here, can you go in a uh, little bit closer? I'm just trying to find the... Where it says RR Youth. RR Youth. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Because RR, I'm presuming, stands for restroom. And you'll see yeah, in the yeah. restroom for the youth right yeah, there, that there's a toilet. And next to the toilet, that's a sink. Yeah. So that's a restroom. That's an RR. That's this an is, RR, right. This is not an RR. This is an SS. No, and excuse me, an SA, <laughs> SS, second anointing. And all it's labeled as, it's a closet. That's and, all it's and, called. Yeah, and I'm guessing that INSTR is for instruction. So it's an instruction closet. Well, they're all instruction because you see the ceiling room. The ceiling room is an instruction room. Oh, look at that. And then there's a waiting room between the two ceiling rooms. But this is called an instruction closet. Nothing so, I've ever done in a ceiling room has led me into a closet with a sink. Well, you haven't lived yet. <laughs> yeah, you weren't going to confirm that you haven't either, huh? No, but that's really <laughs> fascinating that it's right there. It does appear to be somewhat hidden in a way. It's hidden off to the side. It has access only from the ceiling room. And they have pictures of chairs that go in front of the door. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. Love it, love it. So it looks like one more little piece of evidence from one of our many moles inside the church that the second anointing is a real thing and the closet that others have mentioned does actually exist. Yes, yeah, so that's wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, to the person who sent this to our attention. I think it's wonderful that we have people who listen to the program who are 
in a position in the church to be able to know things or access to certain documents, which they can then forward to us for use on the program. I want to assure everybody that we do not use anything on this program without receiving permission from the people who sent it to us. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to be a mole and uh, deliver the goods to Mormonism live or to radio free Mormon or Mormon discussion or any part of our umbrella entity, uh, you can shoot us an email, share the information, and if you ask us to keep things confidential, we will. And if you give us permission to share certain pieces and they're interesting enough to what we're doing, we'll be happy to share them as well. Um, I did want to put a little video up on the screen to get us started, RFM. But before we do that, I want to just make a note. Um, I thought maybe we should have a goal tonight to try to raise a little bit of money for us. Um, my thought would be, rather than an amount, I'm wondering if we could get 15 people to go on to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button and set up a recurring payment. Doesn't matter to me if it's five bucks or 10 bucks a month, but if you would set up something um, and the goal would be to get to, to 15 of those before the end of the show. Hey, that's a great goal. Can I get a goal too? Can I put a goal in? Sure, go ahead. Can we get, look, I don't know all the technological terms for all this social media stuff. Maybe you can help me out, Bill. Can we get 15 people to share this show with somebody else? If you're watching it on Facebook or YouTube, first off, give us a like button, hit the upvote. We don't turn our comments off or our likes, nor do we need to. We get plenty of likes and plenty of positive comments. But what we would love for you to do is hit the share button and send this uh, YouTube video or the uh, video live video on Facebook uh, put it on your own personal page and see if you can get a few people to tune in and watch. And uh, we'll see what we can get up to um, before the show's over and lo- people live watching the show. That would be awesome. But now on to what you've been waiting to hear. There you go. And uh, <laughs> off here with a little commentary by Elder Holland, because he establishes, I think, a paradigm that when we get into the data tonight just doesn't hold up. This is Elder Holland a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this was the the talk that he gave that got a lot of uh, criticism. He's looking almost lifelike. But if we're an extension yeah. of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and take a significant amount of sacred tithes and other human precious resources, all of which might well be expended in other worthy causes, surely our integrity demands that our lives be absolutely consistent with and characteristic of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. At a university, there will always be a healthy debate regarding a whole syllabus full of issues. But until we all come to the unity of the faith and have grown to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, our next best achievement will be to stay in harmony with the Lord's anointed, those whom he has designated to declare church doctrine and to guide Brigham Young University as its trustees. So let me just start there for a minute, RFM. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, we're all going to be disagreeing, but if you disagree with us as the leaders, essentially you ought to stay quiet because until we come to a unity of the faith, we ought to just all stay in line with the best approach to keep truth at the forefront, which is to uh, adhere to the top 15 men of the church who also happen to be the trustees uh, of BYU. Right. So basically on every issue 
that we haven't spoken on, you can argue amongst yourselves. But once we've spoken on an issue, you need to do what we say. And you, there's no more argument that's going to be broke. I find it fascinating how whenever it is that an apostle is addressing an audience and they're doing it in such a way as they want to speak authoritatively and you have to do what I say, which is what, of course, he's going to do in this talk. It's a wonderful talk. He's going to solve the the problem. He's going to bring everybody at BYU to a unity of the faith by giving one of the most divisive talks in the history of the institution. But what he does then is he goes ahead and he says, okay, now you need to follow, but never me. You need to do what never I say. It's always third person, right? So the apostles, well, you're one of them, right? You're one of the senior ones. You're really saying not follow the apostles. You're saying follow me. But apparently even Elder Holland recognizes that that could be taken the wrong way, even though it's exactly what he means. Yeah. And um, when you set up a paradigm where you say, look, disagreement's going to happen, but you need to fall in line with what us 15 men uh, through the ages have taught and where we currently are, because living prophets trump dead ones, where we currently are. And that's the safest route for you. What you are implying is that you are the best conduit for people staying on the straight and narrow and having truth in their life. But and we can use just this topic that's that is at the forefront today that Elder Holland was talking about. Um, there is this PDF. This is uh, I think this was LatterGayStories.org. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, but this is a document they have on their website. I used to have the kind of first edition of this, and it was just a very plain text document that laid out the chronology of messaging by the LDS church and its leaders um, towards LGBTQ folks. And um, I'm aptly aware of all of the incorrect teachings and theology that they've had on this comment. So I thought it would be fun tonight if we spent a little time talking about this. And then a listener sent me an old document that you did a podcast on once it was a document that was leaked by Mormon leaks. And as far as uh, you knew, there, there wasn't any like real hard copies of this available, but um, I actually was sent one by a listener. And so we'll go over that document as well. But I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, have you, have you done a lot of research into this where you've gone back and looked at what Mormonism's teachings and thoughts and policies and doctrines were around LGBT folks um, since its inception? Um, no, not since its inception, but certainly since 1981. I mean, prior to the 1970s and maybe late 60s, I think there really wasn't a whole lot that was said by the church about it because it wasn't perceived to be an issue that they needed to address. Do I have that part correct? Um, it's it's sporadic in earlier history, but you do find enough that we're gonna we're gonna poke at a few of these things. Okay, and can you go back up there to that litany, the huge paragraph of, it was like adjectives, diabolical, blasphemy, per, is this a description of Radio Free Mormon by the Church of Jesus? No, oh, no, it's, no, it's homosexuality. These are the words that LDS leaders have used. These are the uh, terms, this is the rhetoric that LDS leaders in official and unofficial capacities have used since its beginning to label those who are under that LGBTQ uh, group. Well, for those who listen, can I just go through these really quickly? Yeah, please. Diabolical, blasphemy, pervert, 
unnatural, abnormal, an affliction, immoral, impure, victim, under the control of Lucifer, weak, transgressor, evil, ridiculous, sinful, ugly, predator, sin of the ages, deceitful, abominable, detestable. That could be a law firm. Deceitful, abominable, and detestable. It's a better name than Curtin and McConkie. (laughs) (laughs) Crime against nature, malady, confused, degenerate, addict, unmanly, unseemly, desperate, diseased, helpless, promiscuous, enslaved, contaminate, carnal, selfish, aggressive, brutal, abusive, violent, hopeless, corrupt, filthy, dreadful, unhappy, and counterfeit. You know, there's one I think they missed, which is problem. Yeah. And that comes up several times in this 1981 manual that has fallen into your hands. Yeah. And also you've got Oaks right around that same time when he comes on board with the Quorum of the Twelve and he does, he submits a paper to them that essentially lines out how they should handle this entire issue moving forward. And they have essentially followed that game plan. So uh, let's jump into a few of these. So I'm just going to kind of scroll down. I made notes of the ones I wanted to kind of pick up, but you'll see this goes forever. Um, And what it does is it lines out a, a, a general kind of saying or phrase that is being assigned to the LGBTQ community. And, and then it gives the specific quote that's found in church history. And then it tells you the source. So for instance, on the bottom, it tells you that uh, source link. So you can click that link and it'll take you to the source. So you can see that this isn't just anti-Mormon material, but instead is the official rhetoric of the church throughout its time. So as we go through here, it talks about the first recorded discipline um, you know, talks about Joseph Smith having some accusations against him, sodomy laws in in Utah. There's a bunch of that kind of stuff. But I wanna I wanna get to some of these other ones here. All right. So first off, polygamy is a remedy to homosexuality. So one of the things the church taught was that if you took up polygamy, you would uh, be able to cure homosexuality. Essentially, um, makes sense to me. Yeah. And, and again, there's tons of stories. I'm just going to kind of flip through. So people have to be patient here for a few moments of silence. Once we get into the good stuff, it's setting up a lot of the early history where uh, church uh, documents like journals and other writings indicate that members of one's family were LGBTQ and uh, some of the harassment that they got. Um, By the way, if I can comment about the plural marriage thing, please. Uh, that's just an early version of for a guy, if you're homosexual, right? Get married to a girl in yeah. the temple. And when you realize the good thing you've been missing, then you'll switch teams. Which you'll know if you had 10 girls, it would be, you would even know more that you're missing it. Exactly. Right. Um, so they finally, I think the first time they talk about it being called homosexuality back in 1952. Um, again, we'll get into it here really quick. None dare call it homosexuality. Yeah, and, and again, I would I would recommend that everybody, uh, everybody uh, read this document and take your time, like take an hour out of your day and just flip through these pages and see, uh, see this. By the way, there was secret surveillance by the church. Uh, they sent people out to the bars in Salt Lake City. They they parole or patrolled the uh, parking lots of the schools. They were constantly trying to catch people who were both members of the church and homosexual. So the first thing is homosexuality is a disease. I think that's rhetoric more than anything, but just to note that's, that's not how we frame this. And it does, that doesn't, that doesn't work in the way that we define science in these terms uh, to call homosexuality a disease. Again, marriage will cure homosexuality. Right. There are Um, cures to homosexuality because uh, sometimes it's called a disease, but 
that's when they're trying to talk about there's cures to it, which they will help you understand through your bishop or state president through the manual, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, a disease is sort of something that you really don't voluntarily, you don't choose to get a disease generally. Yeah. And yet the rest of the rhetoric that you're going to cover uh, talks about homosexuality as a choice that can be repented of and can be changed in order to uh, become straight and therefore accepted of God. Yeah. I just want to know prophets, seers, and revelators. The, these are all these quotes come from these men for the most part. There's a few exceptions. So in this particular quote, uh, Spencer W. Kimball, former prophet of the church, uh, 1964 said, we know such a disease, homosexuality is curable. Today, because the world has moved and because science has given us new data, the brethren have had to cave in to that opinion and today recognize that many of these people may have to live with these feelings forever and there isn't a cure. By the way, they also taught here that marriage will cure homosexuality. Gordon B. Hinckley, during his time as prophet, is on the record as saying the opposite of that, which is we no longer suggest marriage as a way to fix this issue. And so just to recognize prophet seers and revelators, certain that they are attaining the voice of God, uh, have missed the mark. And it's interesting. We know the language. We know such a disease of homosexuality is curable. I love Spencer Kimball. He was the president of the church when I joined. He always has a special place in my heart. But I can't help recognizing the fact that at the same time period in the early 60s, Spencer Kimball was talking about Lamanites having their skins become lighter due to their being adopted into Mormon families and becoming members of the church. Yeah, so he is he's well known for teaching things that the church have t has taken a different path on. So again, here's a prophet, seer, and revelator who seems to have gotten it wrong by the modern church's standard, not by mine. Um, so that recognition that homosexuality is curable and that marriage would be the fix. Uh, we already talked about polygamy is a remedy for homosexuality. Um, we there's a spot just above. I didn't. I'm not going to go into all of these, but there's a spot where they say God will wipe out all homosexual uh, homosexuals. The church obviously doesn't hold that view anymore. That God's just going to come down and make them all disappear. Um, so that doesn't really hold up. Uh, we talked about the secret surveillance. Um, let's see here. Pornography causes homosexuality. Like, think about that for a moment. This idea that pornography causes homosexuality. If that's true, then most of the men in the church, I think, would be homosexual. Um, yeah, and, and it doesn't make sense to me. Are they suggesting that it's got to be uh, homosexual? I mean, like gay pornography? No, no. So, so let's see here. Um, a normal 12 or 13-year-old boy or girl exposed to pornography literature could develop into a homosexual. You can take a healthy boy or girl and by exposing them to abnormalities, virtually crystallize and settle their habits for the rest of their lives. Now, again, I don't think there's any debate that pornography can be harmful in, in certain situations. I think the, they always want to come up with a cause and the cause always has to be something that they can give some advice on. And then that person can change not doing that thing. And now they won't be homosexual. And again, just recognizing that the church today says they don't really know what causes it. Right. They're going, they're going back to the, oh, we don't know 
defense, which is becoming so prevalent in so many areas of the church. We don't know. They'll back up to we don't know. By the way, that was Victor L. Brown in 1970 from General Conference, right? That Second quote that you were reading. Writing Bishop Rick. It's just so funny, these expressions. Pornogra- pornography literature, where he says a normal 12 or 13-year-old boy or girl exposed to pornography literature could develop into a homosexual. I think I know what he means, but it's almost like he's the kind of guy who gets caught with a playboy and then says to his wife, well, I just subscribe for the articles. It's pornography literature, see? I think it's really the pictures that he's opposed to. Yeah. Here, Spencer W. Kimball again. Curious people become gay, but they can change. Um, Let's see here. Uh, One of Satan's strongest weapons is to make the victim believe the practice is incurable regardless of one's effort. Mm -hmm. Satan tells his victims that it is a natural way of life, that it is normal. Uh, that pervert. By the way, the church now says it may essentially be an inborn thing, right? Like church said, we don't know what the cause is. We don't know. So they are leaving that as a possibility on the table. And I think they want to say we don't know because they, to side with science, would also be throwing these quotes directly under the bus rather than um, more subliminal or more uh, um, implicit, I guess. Whenever uh, science ends up overwhelmingly uh, demonstrating a church's position, well, this church I'll speak to this church's position on any issue to be overwhelmingly incorrect. Uh, the church has a habit of going to, I don't know, or we don't know whether it's evolution is a great example, right? Yeah. Evolution. Well, there's no evolution. There's no evolution. This is what happens. God creates Adam, blah, blah, blah. We all know the story. And then science comes along and really overwhelms and overwhelms and overwhelms. And there's responses to it by the church, like in the early 20th century by Joseph F. Smith and the first presidency statement on man, his origin and destiny, right? Mm -hmm. Which is responding to the origin uh, of mankind and evolution uh, and going to the creation aspect of it. But eventually you get to David O. McKay's presidency and by that time in the 1950s and 60s, the science has become so overwhelming that now the church retreats to we don't know. And recognize, too, when they went from these are the words of Abraham written by his own hand to this is a catalyst theory, it's the same idea. We started with A, we ended with B, and we don't know what happened, but we have B, so it's amazing. Right. And when I say I don't know, what I mean is the church says we we take no position. The church takes no official position on uh, evolution and whether that's how men got here. That's the same thing as saying we don't know. It's the same thing they're doing with, um, well, you know, they've, uh, I'm so sorry, I'm stuttering here. I'm trying to say, though, that when they... When they move the goalpost to make it, as you pointed out before, when they make it indiscernible from you know the true church from an intentional fraud, it's the kind of language that fluffs things up and goes like, oh, like who knows what happens? Maybe, what if? And the catalyst theory is just more of that. And just as you're pointing out, I don't know essentially goes like, hey, we do know some things. We know these seven things, but the rest of this stuff, maybe we got it wrong. But they don't really want to say we got it wrong. They just move from the position of we are certain A equals B to, well, I don't know, like we have A and now we have B and, you know, maybe. Right. And now I've got my thoughts together. I was talking about the the priesthood ban and the temple ban with blacks, right? Mm-hmm. And so forever it was taught. There's two main reasons. There's a curse of Cain. There's the lack of valiance of the pre-mortal existence. For instance, fence sitters, the stuff we've all heard, right? Yeah. Growing up in the church. And now the church has disavowed those particular theories, but 
they're not going to say the ban was wrong. They're just going to say, we're disavowing those theories of men, but we don't know why it was that God chose to keep the priesthood from blacks for over a century in the church. So we just don't know. Right. Um, so again, curious people become gay, but they can change. And again, you, you have to read the quote, but the the idea that they're putting at the top is in each of these quotes. Uh, you can see at the bottom, it is curable. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about, you know, uh, this next one I thought was kind of interesting. Gays and their allies are degenerate. The church is trying, by the way, to somewhat paint itself now as an ally, right? Like it says, hey, we we now fight for their rights. We now... We now, once the once gay marriage was made legal in Utah, we came in and said, "Let's protect uh, their working rights. Let's protect them as people. Let's let's treat them equally, and also let's protect religious freedom too." Mm-hmm. So, uh, so long as you tolerate this gay world and its degenerate people, you are in a very desperate situation, and you are playing with fire, just like a child who might be pounding a bomb with a hammer. Homosexuality can be cured if the battle is well organized and pursued vigorously and continuously. The church itself perhaps has allied itself at least to a little degree in Utah when it fought for that legislation. And so I wonder if the church is breaking its own rules now in terms of those kinds of things that have been laid out. Um, again, I'll skip some of these. There's, there's hundreds of them in here. Uh, homosexuality leads to bizarre acts. By the way, I think just being a human leads to bizarre acts. And I think when you study human beings, uh, I think there's a certain percentage of us that uh, kind of go off uh, and do kind of some silly things and some crazy things. I don't think being a homosexual, there would be any science or data that says that homosexuals are more prone to bizarre acts. Uh, gay and lesbians are not happy people. I'm going to tell you, I know a lot of gay people and they are the happiest people I know. Um, they are funny. They are real. They are vulnerable. Um, they, they seem to have their, uh, lives together a whole lot more than I do. At least the gay and lesbian friends that I've got. Can you stop right there for a second? This is from the enzyme July of 1974. It's written by a doctor, Lindsay M. Curtis, homosexuals and lesbians seldom are happy people. Well, of course, you can't be happy outside the church. I think we all know that. And by the way, cause and effect, they could they possibly be unhappy because we're just persecuting the hell out of them? Oh, yeah. That, that was one of the funny things about Elder Holland's talk at BYU recently, because he wanted to play the victim card. Here the church has been making the church like the least hospitable place, the least welcoming place for anybody who's gay. And yet he wants to say we've got scar tissue of our own because we've been trying so hard to work with gay people and come up with some kind of a, uh, a way to figure this out, but we're not coming up with anything. So he mentions about, well, we've got scar tissue of our own. And it's like the guy who complains about getting a flat tire after backing over somebody. Mm, and he says, Hey, car, my running over you damaged my car. Look at the repairs. I know. Hey, look, I, I backed over you, but I got a flat tire. I that's a draw. Okay. <laughs> you should be feeling sorry for me. Yeah, you've had a life of our system imposing shame and trauma on you, and I cried for a few hours. We're even. Yeah, and I want to conclude this last part, though, from this quote. This is what I was aiming toward. Theirs is a relationship that is unnatural, one not bound by fidelity, trust, or loyalty, and one totally lacking in the meaningful family relationships that marriage offers. Well, now that's not true. Now, they can be married. They can have those relationships. They can be bound by fidelity, trust, loyalty, right? 
And what was the reason that it was lacking those things? It was because we as human beings created arbitrary constructs that said they were an outside kind of people and they don't get to have the same kinds of benefits that we do. Right. Well, I, I think that uh, the vast majority of humanity, if I can speak for them, um, generally, traditionally, there's one man and one woman in a marriage. And I think that's something that certainly has a great weight of tradition behind it. Yeah. It's just the irony, of course, is huge when it's the LDS church with its history with polygamy who's arguing against unnatural or unorthodox marriage relationships. Huh. They they invented it, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> At least in the modern age in Western society. So, so I thought it was funny if you took this quote from the enzyme from 1974 and applied it today. Now, all of a sudden, that objection goes away because it's been taken care of because gay people can get married. Right. Right. So once we created a way for them to enjoy the same benefit, they many of them took it up. Um, and, and it wasn't. Yeah, it's not the way we frame it. And that's what um, led to the policy of exclusion in 2015. Just several months after the Supreme Court issued its ruling. Yeah. Mixed orientation marriage, another cure for homosexuality. Again, uh, it should be noted that Gordon B. Hinckley uh, corrected that, at least to some degree, somewhere off out there. I think I have a note of it somewhere. But um, this idea that uh, marriage uh, in a mixed uh, sexual uh, orientation marriage is the solution to a uh, the cure, getting fixed. Um Let's see here. Of course, there's all these manuals and, and things you can look at. Uh, I like the picture of Victor L. Brown Jr., though. Oh, look at that. This is lack of love leads to homosexuality. Again, I've got lots of uh, gay and lesbian friends, and they are extremely loving, kind, forgiving, compassionate. I I haven't met better people than the, the gay and lesbian people in my life. Um, they are just good, good humans. And so I think stuff like this just is, is stuff we say out of ignorance. But again, Victor L. Brown, uh, BYU professor, uh, outside influence creates homosexuality. Gordon B. Hinckley, 1975, speaking about a young gay man who had recently visited Hinckley, he said, we talked of the influences that had put him where he is, of the home which he came, the associations of other young men, books and magazines uh, that he read and shows seen. Maybe he was gay to begin with, and so he was drawn to things that um, were more validating to who he was inside. I, oh. I think I think sometimes the cause and effect is so off balance in Mormonism. And here I was just wondering where this conversation took place. Yeah, I, it, yeah. Apostle Quorum of the Twelve, October nineteen seventy uh, seventy five, opposing evil, the ensign, uh, November seventy five, page thirty eight. Oh my gosh, that is a very young looking Boyd K. Packer. He looks so boyish and innocent there in that picture. Yeah, so notice him. This, by the way, was changed. The church uh, changed this talk. But from our pre-mortal life, we were directed into a physical body. There is no mismatching of bodies and spirits. Boys are to become men, masculine, manly men, ultimately to become husbands and fathers, no one is predestined to a perverted use of these powers. Um, young men only. We all know what kind of went on there with uh, him talking about punching a kid uh, who made a uh, pass at a fellow man. missionary. Yeah, and another missionary. Poor familial relationships result in homosexuality. So this is J. Richard Clark, second counselor in the presiding bishopric. This is the April 1977 General Conference. 
poor familial relationships result in homosexuality. Again, we don't have time to read all of these. I would just suggest you do it. Can I bring up something at this point? Is that okay, Bill? Yeah, by all means. Just because uh, you had shared with me the 1981 leadership manual in the church titled homosexuality that was distributed to all the different leaders, bishops, yeah. state presidents, branch presidents, blah, blah, blah. And, and people, the, know, people should know how this works. So when the handbook comes out, there was used to, again, no, there's no internet at the time. The internet doesn't exist. So when the church handbook of instruction was given, rather than rewrite an entire handbook, they would create and hand out new small little tiny books that you would then put in your three ring binder with your handbook and they would be addendums to the existing handbook. And that's what this was. This was sent to bishops and stake presidents as an addendum to the existing handbook. Right. And um, I think you mentioned this before, but back uh, four years ago now, it was December of 2017, Mormon leaks got a hold of this because generally when they go out of style and the church wants them to be uh, put in the ash heap, they actually send out a directive to put it in the ash heap and destroy these. So these become collector's items. And at the time, there was only one that I could find anywhere in the world. I did a podcast on this. It's episode 29. It's called The Ghost of Homophobia Past about this because it was leaked by Mormon leaks. There was only one copy that I could find, and it was at the BYU library. It was in the reserve section, and it could not be checked out. Mm. Yeah, so I was lucky to get my hands on uh, an existing one. But that was a big deal at the time, and the church took it in the shorts. They got another black eye because they were trying to suppress this, because it shows what their views were in print at the time in 1981, and because they were trying to suppress it, to hide it, to make sure that nobody found out about it. And that's what it gave it the, the impact it had. And I know Newsweek did at least an online story about it. And I think other places probably did a story about it as well. So, but you've got your own copy. Yeah. And I, I don't have it in front of me. I, I meant to bring it with me today to work so that I would be able to kind of hold it up in front of the camera. But I've got that 1981 booklet. I'll put a picture on Facebook tonight with me holding it. Uh, well, to I, I printed um, it off. And so the point I just wanted to make is that, yeah, over and over, they talk about here's how people, and it's mainly boys are talking about, here's how boys become homosexual, okay? And then they give all these reasons. First off, there's a dad who's not in the home, or there's a dad who's too much in the home, and he's like really, really overbearing, or there's no dad in the home, or he's off working somewhere, or going to church meetings, and he's not around enough. And so the mother becomes really, really overbearing. And these are the things that that happen in a child's life that make them become homosexual. Masturbation, of course, plays a huge role in it. Pornography plays a huge role in it. The thing that I thought was so funny in this uh, manual is that it goes ahead and it gives all of these uh, instances of things that cause homosexuality. But then on page three, uh, they have this line, which is they, they put forth different categories of homosexuals because they've got this down to a science, right? Oh, you got it there. That's cool. Yep. So page three, if you can zero in on the middle paragraph where it says category two, situational homosexuality, because category one is early memory homosexuality, right? But category two, situational homosexuality, you're so funny here because it says individuals in this category include, include those who experience occasional temporary homosexual feelings or behaviors through curiosity, experimentation, pornographic stimulation, peer pressure, 
drug or alcohol abuse or living in close proximity to a member of the same sex. And of course I went, wait a second, what do you talk, what's a mission? What's a mission if, if it's not living in close proximity to someone of the same sex for two years? But then notice the very next line. Their family background is often quite normal with no unusual family problems. I actually laughed out loud when I read that because I thought, okay, so in other places in the manual, you're saying that abnormal and unusual families, dynamics, end up producing homosexuals. But now you're saying that homosexuals can also be produced by a completely normal family. So yeah, the same thing could be said for heterosexual people. It's like all roads lead to Rome, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So basically they're saying homosexuals can come from anywhere. Uh, we really don't know what causes it. We're pretending that we know, but really we're giving excuses that cover all the bases, mainly because guess what? Homosexuals come from uh, dysfunctional homes. They come from functional homes. There's no way to say what causes it. And mainly because nine times out of 10, and I'm not an expert, and I know that there's exceptions to every rule, but I think that the overwhelming scientific consensus is that by and large, homosexuals are homosexuals because they were born that way. Yeah, there's actually science behind this. It's called epigenetics, where uh, certain genetic factors that we can observe can be linked to a um, statistical significance of people being straight or people being gay. So, for example, I don't remember which fingers it is, but on the male hand, most males have a, have like the middle finger is a little longer than the ring finger. But mm -hmm. in when they when they study people who are um, gay men, the the ring finger again, I might be getting the fingers wrong, but the ring finger uh, will be a little longer than the middle finger more often. And the other one is your birth order. If you are the fourth boy or fifth boy or sixth boy born into a large family, the more boys that were born before you by that mother, the higher statistical chance you have of being gay. And huh. so they call it epigenetics because they're not sure exactly it's genetic. But what they believe is happening is that in the uh, womb, as the fetus is developing, that there are certain chemicals and hormones and things going at work, and that whatever certain life situations or exposure or birth order, for instance, those things are all playing a role on how the mother's body uh, interacts with that fetus. And hence, they can now demonstrate that there are epigenetic factors in, um, in as a cause or a link, I shouldn't say a cause, but a linked um, thing going on with people being gay or lesbian or um, I don't know that any of this data has come out for transgender yet, but I would expect to find some of that same kind of data there as well. That's interesting. I didn't know that, but I do know when I hold my hand up to the camera that I have a straight middle finger. You have a straight middle finger. Hmm. Yeah, totally. It's longer. The ring finger is shorter. Yeah. So obviously your theory may be true. Yeah. And it's not that everybody or no one, it's that it's a higher statistical chance, right? Right. I understand. No, no, I, I appreciate it. So, um, let me skip here just a little bit. An unchecked man might become homosexual. Unchecked? Yeah. What does that mean? Once, a carnal, once the carnal in man is no longer checked by the restraints of family life and by real religion, there comes an avalanche of appetites which gathers momentum and is truly frightening. As and one what? jars loose and begins to roll downhill, still another breaks loose, whether it is an increase in homosexuality or corruption, drugs or abortion. Yeah, so he's basically saying like, hey, we, you know, if we're not, if we don't have any rules and and regulations around us, we all could just fall off the cliff and become uh, become homosexual. 
Right. And I see, and I think you can see there the Philip, the philosophy. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just getting frustrated with myself here. I think you can see there the philosophy of getting married to cure homosexuality. Yeah. Because he says, if you're not constrained by marriage, then you'll go on to become more gay. Right. And, and notice the importance of real religion, too. Yes. Uh, homosexuals are not created in God's image. It was not God who made them homosexuals that way. He gave all mankind free agency. Marky Peterson is saying they're not born that way. The church now goes, mm, I don't know that. I don't know. Maybe, right. like, it could be. We don't know the cause. Can and I, I read? Go ahead. Go ahead. You complete your thought, please. I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, I think the day is coming not too far distant where the church will have to acknowledge the science because they can't be so far out of whack with where the current data is. And so as soon as it becomes generally known about epigenetics and these other kinds of data among the conservative part of the population, uh, I think the church will have no choice but to essentially run counter, and to some degree it already does, to this idea because he knows the cause. He knows it's not born in them. And the church today would go, we don't know that. Right. And that's from 1978. This manual came out in 1981. And I just wanted to read from page two. Perfect. Back up. Okay. This one's going to be in the middle. It's under D, counteracting rationalization. Here you go. The church's unequivocal position. That sounds like it's what the church teaches to me. The church's unequivocal position. We're changing is that any rationalization of homosexuality is wrong. Okay, now go down to homosexuality as a sin. Inspired prophets have taught throughout the ages, Bill, that homosexuality is a sin. As such, it can be forsaken and following repentance can be completely forgiven. Now they give a passage from the uh, Joseph Smith translation of Romans, but we don't need to go there. Can we go up to the top of the right column? This is following along the same idea. Homosexual behavior is learned and can be overcome. To believe that immoral behavior is inborn or hereditary is to deny that men have agency to choose between sin and righteousness. The Lord has given man the freedom to make moral choices, and this agency is the cornerstone of his plan for exaltation. And it goes on. So here's here's what's going on, and I think it's apparent from these quotes. The deal is this, is that the church has already decided, and it certainly isn't the only religion to take this position through the course of history, is that homosexuality is a sin, all right? And homosexuals will be judged by God for that sin. It would not be just or fair for God to judge somebody because that's just the way he made them or that's the way they are. It is only fair and just for God to judge somebody for choices that they make. God is fair and just and therefore, Bill, homosexuality must be a choice. Yeah, this would no longer be the official position of the church today, would it? It would not. And this is 40 years ago, because that's 81. It's now 2021. And I think this is the point that you're you're making with playing Elder Holland's uh, comments from just um, a couple weeks ago now in 2021. 
And um, yeah, it's very different now from what the church was saying 40 years ago. In, in fact, the yeah, the church's position today by this standard on that page that you just read, that would be an apo- our, our position today would be apostate to the church then. Yes. Because they're essentially saying it has to, it can, it cannot, it cannot absolutely, it would, it would, it would uh, frustrate the plan of salvation mm-hmm. if, if this was an inborn thing. This has to be learned and it has to be curable. It has to be fixable. Right. And now the church has come to the point where it is making room for the possibility that pretty much all the scientists are right, that it is largely if not exclusively inborn, it's not a choice that people make. And so the church has moved in 40 years from that place to the place it is now. And yet elder Holland is acting as if the place the church is now is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And you need to listen to us and follow what we say about the subject while ignoring the fact that 40 years ago, we said something completely different. In other words, what Elder Holland says, he wants to present it as the end of the line, when in actuality, it's probably just a way station on a spectrum. Yeah, and might we recognize that at any given moment, once we have some hindsight, we might realize that the church on everything was wrong and has changed on everything and adjusted all of it. And hence, in any given moment, they are spouting an opinion that they claim is from God. Only 20 years later, 40 years later, 80 years later, they have a completely different opinion that runs counter to that. And maybe, as we explore these documents through the through the evening, maybe they're the worst place to go to get truth and to understand how the world works. Right. So when Elder Holland says that until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the stature of the Son of God and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which I think is Ephesians 4.14, if I'm remembering my seminary scriptures correctly, then until we come to that point of perfection, all of us together, then the best we can do is listen to what the apostles have to say. Except that what causes these men to change is the lost and fallen world, which comes out with better data And then these men have to, 40 years later than everyone else, correct their opinions and their stances. And and so maybe it's even worse than we're saying. Maybe it's not that uh, they're the worst place to go for truth. Maybe they're the best place to go for inaccurate, false information that's behind the times. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I think it's totally uh, able to be shown. Yeah. That on pretty much every social issue, the church is 20 to 30 years behind the time, which is really what we would expect when it's being run by men who are of their age, who grew up in generations past, and their policies today tend to reflect what they grew up with. And they don't talk to God. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any need to sit around with 15 old men talking about the permutations of issues or to cry for hours. All you would have to do is have Jesus show up in the room and tell you how to operate, and you do it. But instead, when you te- when you teach people that Jesus does show up, but in reality, you sit around the room with 15 other, you know, 14 other old men uh, who hold old views, and you cry for hours, and you discuss all the permutations of all these issues, maybe you're always, and you always have to be unified, maybe you're always going to come out behind the times. Yeah, I think the church is designed, not intentionally, but that's the way it's developed, 
It's designed to be behind the times. And yeah. a prophetic church that's always behind the times. It always is. And every time it changes, it's usually a generation after the world has changed. Yeah. Here it says, this is Von J. Featherstone of the 70. The homosexual cannot be exalted. Uh, effective fathering prevents homosexuality. Who's at fault for homosexuals, RFM? Uh, fathers. It's the dads, right? Effective fathering prevents homosexuality. Um, I always thought it was crappy. When, when the church had this old teaching, now we teach that uh, the kids who have special needs were more valiant in the pre-earth life. And maybe today we would say we don't know again. But we certainly, I grew up with, and I think you grew up with, people with um, physical or mental challenges uh, born into this world with those, they were the more valiant people in the pre-earth life, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and But we have teachings in our past where I think Harold B. Lee and others taught that people who came with physical challenges uh, or mental challenges um, – defects or those kinds of things were the lesser valiant people in the pre-earth life. And imagine, you know, you're sitting at general conference, you're listening to a prophet say that you've got your special needs kid next to you and the prophet's telling you that he was less valiant. And so now you're, you're already exhausted and drained as a parent who's contributing so much to the needed care of this kid. And now you look at them and go, it's it, Timmy, if only you would have been more valiant. If only you would have, if you only you would have fought harder in the pre-earth life, I wouldn't have to be exhausted at caring for you. I wouldn't yes. have to be um, losing out on what other you know parents have for this or that. Like you're going to start telling stories in your head because the church created such an unhealthy dynamic. And in this particular instance with fathers, they're doing the same thing. If you have a gay kid, now you're now you're feeling bad about yourself because your kid uh, turned out to be homosexual. It's just, it, it's all. It's all so unhealthy and egregiously unhealthy. Can I add to this, Bill? Because unexpectedly, I'm experiencing an emotional response to this quote. Please. Because all of a sudden, it's really hitting me and overwhelming me that the language and the messages of the church for decades and up to and even including today is that if a member of the church is homosexual, okay, it's the member's fault for being homosexual. They're doing the pornography. They're doing the masturbation. Uh, they're doing all the things that cause homosexuality, right? Mm -hmm. It's not only the member's fault. It's the dad's fault for not being involved enough. And just like you said, if, if I'm a believing member who's believing these messages, and there are tons of them who have a gay kid, then great. So now it's my fault as the father that I have a gay child. Same with the mothers because mothers come in for blame too, for being too yeah. protective. And, uh, you know, so it's the mother's fault and the mother gets to look at themselves when they have a gay kid and say, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? So everybody falls in line for a big helping of guilt here, whether it's the mom, whether it's the dad, whether it's the gay child themselves, there's nobody who escapes calumny here, except for the church who is actually creating all of this out of whole cloth by the messages that it's giving. Yeah. And it's all full of guilt and shame It for being a normal human variation, because we all have it. Like just like, look at the old Testament and how shitty it was to left-handed people. Um, the majority of people will always look at others who don't fit in the box and they will always label them as other and as bad and as outsiders. And so you see tribalism and ethnocentricity take a deep root in Mormonism to the point where they 
essentially on anyone who's different, whether you left, whether you are a person of color, whether you are LGBT, we're prophets, seers, and revelators. We know all the reasons these things happen, and shame and guilt be upon you and upon upon your you know your children and grandchildren. And seeing all these quotes together, I am once again stunned by the fact that in his address, Elder Holland takes no responsibility for these messages to gay people and their families, takes no responsibility for the church doing this, but instead puts that on the world, i.e. not the church, but the world has been very, very hard on homosexuals, been cruel to them, I think is his language. So he wants to commiserate with gay people by saying, you know, the world's really been hard on you. Well, while totally ignoring the fact that really it's the church to which they belong and the leaders which they revere, who they believe speak for God, that has been the hardest on them because what they have told them over and over and over again is that they are not acceptable before God unless they repent of their sin, which is a choice, which is curable. And unless they become straight and not homosexual anymore, they are not accepted of God. And then they seem to be shocked by the fact that gay people in the church can be led to despair and even to suicide. Yeah. It's no surprise when you make someone feel broken and you make someone feel like they are not uh, within the tribe and And they don't belong. And that was on page four of this 1981 manual uh, on the third column, second full paragraph from the top. Despair prompts feelings of hopelessness and, and, and hopelessness. Oh, I think it says feelings. It's, it's a bad sentence, right? Despair prompts feelings of hopelessness, hopelessness, comma, and hopelessness combined with the burden of unresolved sin and guilt may lead an individual to contemplate or attempt suicide. Yeah. So yeah. What you make someone feel like crap and they're going to kill themselves. Well, no kidding, but it's like, they think it's the homosexuality that's driving them to despair. And they don't realize that it's this entire message of, Hey, this is a choice. You can choose to not be homosexual. And until you make that choice and make yourself straight, you're not accepted of God. That that's the message that is leading people to despair and even to attempt it and completed suicide. Yeah. We're an hour in. I'll need to zoom through a few more of these. Gays are not created in the image of God. Homosexuality is a learned behavior. Masturbation causes homosexuality. Homosexuality is an acquired addiction. Um, Gays and lesbians have no moral values. Again, they're they're the best people I know. Dating and marriage, a key to eliminating homosexual behavior. Again, the church is clearly... Uh, run counter to that at this point. Uh, worse than abortion or adultery, uh, failure of parents in the home. Again, it's the parents' fault. Uh, homosexual relationships are a dead end. Uh, I know really happy, healthy um, people in a gay marriage today. I, I am, their marriage seems to be doing way better than mine. A priesthood holder would not be a homosexual. Uh, it goes on and on. And I just want to do a couple of things. I want to put one of these up on the board. This is still in the newsroom.churchofjesuschrist.org. You can see that at the top. Let me make this a little bigger. This is Lance Wickman and Elder Oaks. Elder Oaks is uh, asked about how he would handle a gay child who wanted to come home for the holidays. Elder Oaks says, 
That's a decision that needs to be made individually by the person responsible calling upon the Lord for inspiration. I can imagine that in most circumstances, the parents would say, again, Elder Oaks, an apostle, is counseling people. He says, I can imagine in most circumstances. In other words, if you want to be in line with the leaders, you would fall in line with most circumstances. I can imagine that in most circumstances, the parents would say, please don't do that. Don't put us into that position that you would come home for the holidays and visit. By the sure. way, notice notice once again, playing the victim card. Yeah, The parents are the ones who are the victims because they don't want to have their kid come home for the holiday with his uh boyfriend or girlfriend. Right, right. Um, uh, Please don't do that. Don't put us into that position. Surely if there are children in the home who would be influenced by this example, the answer would likely be that. There would be other factors that would make the, 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 I'm sorry, make that the likely answer. By the way, notice that if you have a gay child, okay, who wants to come home with their companion for the holidays, if there are children in the home, right, then that should be the answer. Don't put us in that position. Don't come home because the underlying assumption is, is that impressionable kids who see older brother or older sister with a gay companion will become gay themselves. They'll be more inclined to become gay themselves. Yeah. And he also lays out the exception, but the exception still isn't nice. He goes, I can also imagine some circumstances in which it might be possible to say, yes, come, but don't expect to stay overnight. Don't expect to be a lengthy house guest. Don't expect us to take you out and introduce you to our friends or to deal with you in a public situation that would imply our approval of your partnership. I can't imagine anything more atrocious and homophobic, and the church still has this on their newsroom. This is still the current official teaching of the church. Yes, and it is um, it is astonishing to me, the lack of self-awareness. Now, I've said things, I've stuck my foot in my mouth even tonight. But uh, to have it in print and to have it remain in print for years as this has, where it is clear that Elder Oaks is saying that my standing in the community of the church, the way that I am perceived in the church, is more important to me than my relationships with my children. Yeah. And by the way, and, and it's totally made up, it's totally imaginary in his mind. We were talking before the show about Elder Oaks and how he doesn't offer apologies. Remember you gave the apology at the opening? Yeah, And how Elder Oaks doesn't understand that you never lose by apologizing. If someone thinks you should apologize and you apologize, well, good on you. You're a big man. You did that. Or a big woman, depending on, you know, but you're a big person. It takes a big person to apologize. And if there's some people out there who think you don't need to apologize, but you apologize anyway, well, you're even a bigger person, I guess. So you don't lose by apologizing, right? But and yet here he is thinking thinking in his mind that if somebody else who knows who he is, he's Elder Oaks, he's a member of the Corps of the Twelve, he has his son with him who is gay, and we know that because his son has his you know lover with him at the table at the restaurant who apparently they're holding hands or something that's flashing, they're gay, that that's going to be something that a member would think would detract from Elder Oaks when I think the vast majority of people would think that's a good thing. Mm. And, and I'll add, I was telling you off the air that because you, you brought that up as we were preparing this was the idea that they don't apologize. Um, I, I would note that when you set up a system where you have to be perfect at something and what they have to be perfect at is they have to always be able to discern the voice of God better than the rest of you. And hence, if they apologize 
and or make a habit of admitting where they were wrong, then we are all going to go. It's like a, it's like a, a watch that's only right twice a day. If, if I can't trust, I work every day with calculators. If I can't trust that calculator to give me the right answer, then I might as well throw the calculator in the trash and just do it, do it in my head uh, the long way. If, if the calculator, it doesn't have any credibility to it, uh, the calculator is not worth anything. It's a paper. Were you, were you listening to the Rami Umptum ruminations? I wasn't. Oh, I heard that exact same analogy used on the most recent one mm, of those. I, I didn't. I should check it out. I thought it was a good one. By the way, another example of we don't know. This is what they do instead of saying we were wrong. They go back to we don't know. We talked about it with the priesthood ban. We talked about it with something else. What was it, Bill, earlier? Do you remember? Uh, well, I was talking. Oh, it's the causes of homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know anymore, as opposed to we. the church sure as heck knew exactly what it was back 40 years ago. But another thing, and I apologize for taking too much time. The location of the Book of Mormon events. I mean, the church used to know where the Book of Mormon took place. We yeah. even have a hill. It's called Camorra, right? It's kind of a linchpin to Book of Mormon geography. Bye-bye pageants. Right. But now the geography doesn't, and the geology doesn't line up with Camorra and the, I should say, archaeology. doesn't line up with Camorra being Camorra, as it's described in the Book of Mormon. So the church now changes its introduction to say, we don't take any position on where the events in the Book of Mormon took place, other than it was somewhere in the America and continent, North or South, which yeah. covers a lot of ground. So every time they take a position, hard and fast, science comes and bumps them off that position. They don't say we were wrong. They don't say we were made, we made a mistake. They don't say, I'm sorry. What they say is, oh, well, we don't take a position on it anymore. We just don't know. And by the way, prophet seers and revelators are never, they never seem to be corrected by revelation. They always seem to be corrected by the lost and fallen world whose science and data and experience seems to be pulling them from, from behind, right? Yeah. Um, just a note here, this is the church website up there. Let me make this a little bigger, just to, just so that in case anybody's watching that goes, no, the church doesn't, doesn't do that. Let's just note the actual verbiage. This is same-sex attraction at churchofjesuschrist.org. We may not know precisely why some people feel attracted to others of the same sex, but for some it is a complex reality and part of the human experience. Notice how many of the quotes we've already read in that earlier document, those earlier quotes, that this would run deeply counter to. Um, again, these are prophets, seers, and revelators who speak to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and it seems like they don't have a clue. No, and this is something that I've noticed in general conference talks over the last many years is this increasing uh, repetition of this refrain of we don't know. That the 15 top men of the church, prophets, apostles, seers, revelators, more and more, if you pay attention, now that I've said it, it's like the red Volkswagen on the highway. You don't notice it until somebody mentions it and then all of a sudden you're seeing them everywhere because mm -hmm. your attention has been drawn to it. If you pay attention to that, you'll be surprised at how many times prophets, seers, and revelators are quick to say, we don't know. Mm, absolutely. And that's pretty much it. All of Mormon doctrine, it's not being published anymore. It's gone. Joseph Fielding Smith, if you go through his writings, there's a lot of stuff there that's contradictory with the church today. These men seem to not have a clue and just be pulling stuff out of their ass. Um, I want to note just a couple things from this 81 handbooks. Um, By the way, I think that would be a good title for Elder Holland's most recent talk. Pulling it out of your ass. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. All right, so the uh, position of the church 
Uh, again, we we talked a little bit about that, but I wanted to find see where it's at. Page mm-hmm. one, causes okay. of homosexuality. Here we are. The causes of homosexual behavior: uh, disturbed family background. Number one, poor relationship with peers. I wonder why that might be. Again, mm-hmm. cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Um, what page are you on? Oh, it's one. I'm one. sorry. And then the last one there: unhealthy sexual attitudes. And I think there's a fourth one they put. Yep. Fourth one on page two, early homosexual experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, those are their causes. Again, I would ask, does the current stance of the church mesh with all of those? And uh, at least with some of those, it doesn't. I want to note two more things. Page two, um, homosexuality behaviors learned. You've already pointed to that. Uh, just to reiterate that the church today doesn't know. And the church yesterday was sure it was learned. And in fact, it would be counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ if it wasn't learned. Can we go to the last part of that that last paragraph that I didn't get to before because it's funny? Yeah. Where it continues on, it says, he has revealed. He has revealed that the ultimate... Yeah. Yep. Me go okay, ahead. He has revealed that the ultimate goal for man is eternal life. It is inconceivable that he would permit some of his children to be born with desires and inclinations, which would require behavior contrary to the eternal plan. Yes. They actually use the word inconceivable. And then science and data comes out and then they have to completely flip flop their position. They're like John Kerry. They were for it before they were against it. Yeah. They were for the Iraq war before they were against it. I was thinking more princess bride with the use of the term inconceivable. I don't think that word means what you think it means. The poison in front of you. Yes. (laughs) And then I want to note one last thing. Often when bishops and stake presidents begin asking sexual probing questions, the church comes in and says, that's just a, that's just a leader going rogue. That's just a, an un, you know, a leader who just didn't have the sensibilities about him to do the right thing. If we go to page five on this document, mm-hmm. and these are the questions that you are supposed to ask the person, if you are a bishop or stake president, sitting down with a person, a member who is homosexual – Here's the questions. How many years have you been involved in homosexual behavior? How often do you have homosexual contact? When do you seek them? Why? How do you feel afterwards? To what extent is masturbation a problem? How frequently does he indulge in it? What feelings or attitudes makes you more vulnerable in this area? Are you using pornographic literature? How does it contribute to the problem? I mean, when you start asking those kinds of questions, Mm-hmm. You're asking the sexual probing questions, right? Again, um, I think it's a human nature when we're not trained well to miss the mark and be unhealthy. But it also is part of the church's curriculum and education and uh, training, at least at various times in the church, to ask its leaders to ask sexually probing questions. You said, you know, this document came from 1981. Right around that time, Spencer W. Kimball in the first presidency that was with him made it um, mandatory that leaders start asking about whether members or couples were having oral sex. And they got so much backlash that like, it was like just a couple months later, they pulled it right back. Um, this church has a propensity to be unethical and unhealthy in how it deals with other human beings. Yeah, it's the irony that the entire plan of salvation, as taught and believed by the LDS Church currently, that it is centered upon the heterosexual sex act. So in other words, I mean, sex is glorified and exalted within the LDS framework. And yet the Mormons are so hung up on the issue 
It's this yeah. strange dichotomy that's going on. By the way, I did want to go to page eight too, because this is my favorite part. And I'm saying that sarcastically in case there's anybody who has any question about that. Part of the repentance process under G. G right there. Yeah. Right. If you're gay and if you're going to repent completely so you can get back into full fellowship, you don't just have to become straight. Okay. Okay. That's, that's the easy part (laughs) is going from gay to straight. That's the simple thing to do. That's the easy part of the formula. Here's the hard part. Okay. Since since you have to give up everybody that you've had homosexual relations Mm. with the bishop. Otherwise you can't repent since homosexual behavior. This is from the manual. Since homosexual behavior is possible only with others. Wow. That's a clever deduction. The individual should disclose his sexual partners as an essential part of repentance. The purpose is to help save others. What others? Well, the other homosexuals, right? The leader to whom the names are disclosed should refer the names to the other individuals, priesthood leaders, for follow-up action. Yeah, snitches get stitches. Right. And so you can't repent unless you give up the names and identities of the people that you have been homosexual with. That, I find, uh, even in the troubling manual, I find that part especially troubling. Yeah, that does seem, again, some kind of egregious unhealthiness. Um, I just wanted to know, let me go back here to the screen. Uh, I just wanted to know, again, I would just suggest everybody read it. There are 50 other things in there that I didn't even cover. Um, But I want to say this. Elder Holland was speaking about the LGBT issue, and he said the safest place for us to be is to be with the top 15 and following them. Tonight, this PDF essentially in that 1981 manual shows that that couldn't be the further from the truth, but it's not just the LGBT issue. RFM, let me ask you about other things that have changed. How was the book of Mormon translated? How did we get the book of Abraham? What is Joseph Smith's inspired translation of the Bible? What are the facts and dynamics surrounding Joseph Smith's polygamy? How did God feel about people of color throughout time? How well do these men understand the context of the stories and statements contained in the scriptures? How did the cessation of polygamy occur? How well do these men understand science that runs counter to their teachings? How was the first vision conveyed in juxtaposition to the actual documents? How accurate is anti-Mormon literature in comparison to the correlated curriculum throughout the church's history? How competent are leaders as mouthpieces of God? Now, let me say this. There are hundreds and hundreds of obfuscated teachings, false misrepresentations, whitewashed stories, false narratives, disavowed theories, false doctrine, and misstatements by men who claim to be prophets, seers, and revelators. But ask yourself, how often have these men been right, been consistent, been honest, been transparent, been forthright? And just how often have these men been ahead of the fallen and lost world, giving truth that has held up over time? Name for me a teaching where men have been consistent, where these men have been consistent and on the leading edge. And if you struggle to come up with as much, might it be more rational and reasonable to trust science, historians collectively, peer-reviewed research, and maybe even the inner wisdom within yourself when your gut is telling you these men are wrong? If leaders have always been unreliable as barometers of truth on this topic and others, Why would we assume in this moment that they are right? If Elder Holland is not right, and if these leaders are not right, what is the harm 
and Elder Holland's recent speech at BYU. Mm. Bravo. Did you write that? I did. That part I had to read. I wrote that. That was fantastic. I, uh, I learned years ago that if I use my critical thinking brain and I sat with other people and the hurt that the world around them was causing them, I almost always came out holding a better position than these 15 men. Almost always. In fact, I don't know that I can come up with an exception, except maybe um, illegal immigration, which I think the church was making space for people to come into this country illegally and for us to just let that be. Um, and and I saw um, at my at that time in my life, I was of a different position. Again, I don't want to get into that. People may disagree with me. I'm only making the debate that every instance in my life, I think I came out ahead at a better position in my own mind uh, after I th- was thoughtful about things and sat with people in their stories than listening to these top 15 men as prophet seers and revelators. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Um, any, any thoughts from you? Like, I I definitely want to cover a couple of things that you were bringing out. Anything you want to say here? No, I think that you have given some great closing words to this podcast because we're at 640 now. And I think that we've gone for an hour and what is it? 20 minutes? Hour and 20 minutes. You got it. I think that if it's okay with you, I think it'd be a great time to invite people to call. Okay. Let me put the banner up. I have put Google voice on. Um, and don't be surprised if Bill just, you know, ushers you right off the phone call, okay? Yeah, and, and I'll say it here. Like, again, we want we want personal stories, but it be as short and concise as you can. But I don't want you to feel nervous and, and not be as calm as you think you'd be without me saying that. And then also just stay on topic. I, we don't want to field questions on other things tonight. We want to stay on topic each time. And so those are the kinds of calls that, sadly, we just probably won't entertain very far. Um, so stay on topic. Otherwise, phone number tonight is 435-200-3478, or as usual, 435-200-FIST. Well, Bill is manning the phones. I will say that, um, you know, we, and especially Bill, because he's in charge of the technology, it's a huge balancing act that we're doing because we're trying to do, we are doing a live show. We're trying to make it as entertaining as we can for as many people as we can and we want to have callers we want to encourage that but sometimes when people are calling in sometimes we start wondering as the call is continuing is this something that is appealing to the listeners or is this something that maybe is not and we can't ask because we don't have that immediacy with the audience and so we sort of have to just sort of play it by ear and maybe try and direct the call in a certain direction uh, whatever that direction might be I think the bill does a great job. Of course, we still have the technology where the caller can't hear me. So that's probably a, a mixed blessing of sorts. But nevertheless, we're trying to do it to make the best show possible. Uh, you know, to err is human, to forgive divine. We ask for your forgiveness. Do we have anybody, Bill? Uh, we do have we do have a caller. I'll go to him in just a second. Just a note, we've got three new uh, subscribing donations. We really would love to try maybe in the next 20 minutes if folks could jump on to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button. It doesn't, again, doesn't matter the size of the donation. The goal is to create 15 recurring donations tonight. Uh, So far, only three have come in. Uh, Appreciate that. Andrew, um, 
Regan or Reagan and uh, Bob, thank you very much for for contributing. Jay, you are our first caller tonight. You're on the air, Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon hi. and Bill Real. Um, hi, uh, what do you got for us tonight, hi. my friend? Well, I just wanted to ask, what what, what eye color do you have? And uh, RFM, what's your eye color? What color eyes do you have? Uh, I've got brown eyes. I identify as having purple eyes. Oh, maybe he can't hear. He, anyway, he said he has purple eyes. I identify as having purple eyes. He, he identifies as having rain, purple eyes. Or maybe rain. Maybe one of us has rainbow eyes. Huh? Anyway, yeah. I just wanted to say that uh, my eyes are hazel, and uh, so I, I want to believe that. Uh, how, how did I say this to myself when I was? Anyway, I would hope that the church would accept. I believe that science would say that we have those color eyes because we were born that way. Um, and so I would hope the church would accept me for having hazel eyes because <laughs> um, I was born that way. I know that's probably a terrible argument, but um, um, anyway, that's all I had. Gotcha. Appreciate <laughs> the phone call. Stuff. No, that's okay. Appreciate right. it. No, and and I, I agree with Jay because denying Jay the priesthood because of the color of his eyes would just be as rationally uh, relatable as denying him the priesthood because of the color of his skin. He has as much choice in his eye color as he does in his skin color. By the way, I do want to tell this one story very quickly. Bill's on the phone. There was somebody who had mentioned before what our uh, views were when we were younger about gay people. I, of course, had the church's view uh, about gay people because the church is true. It's got apostles. It's got prophets. God talks to him. He gives us the true scoop. Gay people, bad. All those adjectives are true. But I was a dance major in college. And so more girls than guys, but the guys who are there are basically all gay. There are very few exceptions. I was one. Steve Thomas was another. But everybody else is gay. And Maurice Dancer, his last name was actually Dancer, hugely popular guy throughout the entire department. Everybody loved Maurice. I loved Maurice. He's a gay guy, but wonderful smile. And we were friends. And I actually sat down with him once because this didn't compute. How can a guy who's so wonderful, so charismatic, such a good guy, how can he be all these things that the church teaches he is because he's gay? And I asked him, I, I expressed my confusion to him. I don't understand. Can you help me understand this? And Maurice says to me very patiently, he says, look, Radio Free Mormon, he says, you like girls, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I like girls because I want to make that clear. And he says, if someone told you that you had to like boys, would you be able to do that? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, it's the same for me, only the reverse. And all of a sudden, the scale started to fall from my eyes. And I began to see things in a new light. And it wasn't the light the church was teaching me, but it was the light of truth, experience, familiarity, understanding. And I owe that huge first step to Maurice Dancer. And I want to give him a shout out mm. for that. Thank you, Maurice. Yeah. When we sit down with humans who are different than us, it becomes um, understandable that they are just human and it just is a different kind of being human. So the people who are left-handed or have different color eyes or have a different skin color or come from a different place in the world, these are differences that we have for ages uh, denigrated to some type of outsider insider 
uh, type of rhetoric, but the reality is they're just a different kind of human. Mm -hmm. And I think this is at least partially behind Elder Holland wanting to make an issue of the valedictorian from 2019, who happens to be gay and mentioned it incidentally as part of his rather lengthy address that that was improper. And I think the reason he thinks it's improper is at least partially because we don't want to broadcast the fact that you're gay. You're the smartest guy in the freaking class because you're the valedictorian. That's why you have this opportunity to address the students. And we don't want to make it so that we can understand that you're smart, lots of people like you, and you're gay, because that's really the critical problem. If people are horrible people, if it's Charlie Manson and he's gay, we'll talk about that all day long, okay? Because then you can associate it with the evil. But if you've got a great person who's gay, well, we don't want that to be announced. That needs to be a don't ask, don't tell situation, because otherwise it helps people to see these people don't have horns. They're not evil. They're not the ones who are like uh, destroying society, as is often frequently um, presented. So I think that is at least partially behind why it was that Elder, Elder Holland took the extraordinary step of calling out the valedictorian from 2019. Yeah, in fact, the gay kid could be the most successful student in the school. Oh, yeah. And I think by definition, he is, at least academically. That's my point, though. By by quieting, by saying what he did was bad, like what you're really what you're really trying to stay away from is go. You could you can be gay and be the most successful kid in this school. Yes. Yeah. Which which Mormonism doesn't want to really qualify or quantify that kind of success. Right. And factually, that's absolutely accurate. Because he's the valedictorian and he's gay. Therefore, if Elder Holland had just approached it from that point of view, I don't mean to, you know, dogpile on or or hound dogpile on Elder Holland. But if he'd approached it from that point of view and that was all he said, I think it would have been a totally different reaction. Yeah. Absolutely. Our second caller here, I believe it's Kaysen. Kaysen, you are on Mormonism Live with Bill and RFM. Uh, what's your thoughts tonight? Hey, uh, RFM and Bill, I just, uh, I'm a huge fan of you guys. I've uh, listened to so many of your episodes. I, uh, I can't get enough of it. So um, kind of my thought tonight is um, I know that, you know, Elder Christofferson's brother is a, I mean, he's, he's been on different podcasts and he's kind of a well-known member of the, the LGBTQ community as well as elder gong. I know has a son who is also uh, a member of the, the gay community. And so I'm wondering when they hear elder Holland coming and speaking the way he, he did, are they just, are they shaking their heads or are they so part of the, are uh, they're just so in it that they're like, Oh, okay. You're exactly right. Elder Holland. Uh, we good job, buddy. Or are they going to go home that night and just think, what the heck am I, am I a part of? Like, I know that like an elder gong example, he's like, I know my son is a great person. Uh, I raised him as good as I could. And I'm, I'm glad with the way he turned out. Cause that's the way he was meant to be. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, what, what do members of the quorum who have a family member in this, who are a member of the community, that community, what are they thinking? Perfect. So we'll address that. Um, RFM, my experience is, and let me, uh, give me a second here. In fact, do you want to share your thoughts first? Sure thing. Um, I don't know exactly 
my expectation is that they're not going along with it. They're going WTF. Are you freaking kidding me? And I will anal and I'll, I'm sorry. It's too late for me. I will analogize. Analogize is the word. I'll analogize that to what happened was a year and a half ago with black members in the church who have been members of the church for a long time. They have been very long suffering with the church's movement on allowing blacks to have full membership in the church. The 1978 policy was changed so that they could have the priesthood. They could go to the temple and they have tried to be as patient as they could with the church and try and give it the benefit of the doubt and try and be charitable to the leaders and all the things you have to do in order to uh, still be a member of the church as a black person and continue to have that perspective. And then a year and a half ago, it was in January of 2020, I believe, when the new church, the Come Follow Me manual comes out and they have the quote in there from Joseph Fielding Smith about the black skin being a sign of the curse. You remember that? And so it was just like, you have got to be kidding me because there was a number of black members of the church who said, okay, forget it. This is ridiculous. We have born with you long enough. We had thought you had gone from here and you're slowly making these steps up to here. And now all of a sudden what you're going to go all the way back to that, I'm done with you. So all I can say is I would not be surprised if there were at least some members of the gay community who felt similarly about Elder Holland's recent address. Perfect. Um, I actually have some firsthand experience. Well, I should, I should, let me say it differently. Secondhand experience, which is um, I had people communicate to me who absolutely had a seat um, in a room with conversations with top church leaders, um, multiple apostles, Elder Holland, Elder Christofferson, uh, the name is slipping me, but a uh, really thin guy. Brenland? <sighs> Um, no, 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 no. It, it's okay. But, um, I'm not Razban then. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> Mary Stevenson. Okay. Um, multiple apostles, multiple occasions, multiple people who I had conversations with directly to a T behind closed doors. These men, these leaders, apostles of, uh, in the church make note that this isn't how they feel about the issue, but because the church has the apostolic charge that we talked about a few weeks ago, because these men have to put on a united front. They behind closed doors said uh, some of the older guys have to die before we can make certain kinds of changes in the church. And sadly, those men perceive their loyalty to the institution as a bigger deal than the health and well-being of the individuals who are members of the church who are suffering trauma in the meantime. And to me, that is horrific. Uh, I'm not the best of human beings, but when I perceive another human being being traumatized by my silence, um, I, I don't really have the ability to stay silent. Yeah, that's actually in the job description for being an apostle. Yeah, you're told you from day one. You have to put the needs of the organization above the needs of the members. Yeah. There is never a time that I've ever seen any member of the leadership of the church choose members over the church as an institution when those two things come into contact and they have to choose one or the other. It's always the church they will choose. 
never the members, which tells me everything I need to know about their priorities. Yeah. Third caller, Nicola, you are on the line. One of our female listeners, I believe. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's really great to hear all the stuff that you'll put out there. I'd like to know, um, first of all, I think that a lot of this stuff comes from England, from um, from Victoria, England, because they had a whole bunch of stuff that they put out because they went totally crazy over Charles Darwin's religion did. So they brought a whole bunch of the sexual the sexual stuff up. And then um, my husband read a book, but I can't even remember what the name of the book was, but it talked all about um, Victorian and how they changed all of their, all of the rules and everything because they thought that they were animals and they didn't like that very much. And the other thing I've got is that um, there is a condition called, I'm going to try and, it's text, it's, Testicular um, feminization syndrome, and there's also a, another thing that is um, oh delicate. I think it's delicate X syndrome, and they are both. Obviously, this whole sexual thing is on a scale. We're all on a scale. We're like oh, there's like some people are uh, gay, some people we've, we're on a scale, and we have to look at this stuff. This te- this uh, testicular Feminization syndrome. The people on the outside are really, really pretty females, but on the inside, they have got no womb, they've got no testicles, and they've got this tiny little bit of a. Um, I can't even. That they've got testicles, testicles inside them, mm-hmm. but they've got this tiny little um, piece where they. Um, oh, I can't even. Th- I can't. Basically. They can have sex, but they've got, there's no, um, they can't produce children. They don't have a period. So there's all these different things that can happen to people. And obviously now there's enough, like in England, boy George basically blew the lid off of the whole of the stuff. So I couldn't believe it when I came over here because by the time I'd like come back to my, come back from my mission in England, I was starting to come to the realization that this was kind of weird. I didn't know what the heck was going on because the church was telling me one thing. But when I actually saw somebody that ha- I actually was involved in a, a place with people with disabilities that had this um, delicate X syndrome, mm. then I started thinking, well, if that happens, then that means that if people are saying they're gay and stuff, then obviously they're gay. And obviously these things are in the medical textbooks. So if those things are in the medical uh, textbooks, obviously we're learning more and more stuff. But there's studies that uh, twins that are born up that have not even been brought up in the same family are gay. And there's also study. There's so much scientific evidence that people are gay that it's just absolutely barbaric that we are treating people. And I think it's absolutely disgusting that they went and made that person feel so bad. And it, and all the guilt and the shame and everything that's going on is absolutely barbaric. And honestly and truthfully, I just can't believe it. And I can't believe that they had the the absolute audacity to treat teach me this stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, they're lazy liars. I appreciate it, Victoria. Thank you. Nicola. Oh, Nicola. Sorry. Nicola. She was talking about Queen Victoria, I think. Yeah, sorry. I got my words mixed up. Thank you very much. Thank I can't you for the call. hear anything. 
said, so I have to rewatch this program now to find out what he said. No biggie. I'll, I'll let I'll let RFM and I respond to that, and we'll hang up with you and appreciate the phone call. Okay, thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Um, I'm going to get rid of uh, Google Voice here, so let me... Uh... Okay, you go ahead and get rid of that, and I'll just comment that, yep. no, uh, Nicola makes a very, very uh, good point, which is the idea that physically, observably, I mean, you can't observe... I don't know. I don't think they found the gay gene yet. I know some people have thought they have, but you can't actually observe what it is that makes gay people gay aside from behavior, right? Or what makes someone left-handed. Right. You can't look at their body and say, okay, well, I see why you're left-handed. But you can look physically at certain people who are born in a certain way physically with um, different kinds of sexual uh, characteristics. Okay. So we know that that happens. And so if we know that it happens physically, then why is it that we should be surprised that it happens in ways that are not visible? And yet it's still as much are as much of our uh, inheritance by birthright, the way we were born as it is, if you could see that it was physical. And that's one of the things that I took issue with, with the family proclamation in that one sentence where it tries to add doctrine to what it is that the church teaches which is it talks about gender in terms of male or female, that gender is an essential characteristic of pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal existence. And I may actually have just quoted that. But if we know, as we do, that gender is not necessarily an essential characteristic of mortal existence, and the example was just given there as to how we can know that, right? Then why is it that we should assume that it is it is any more true for pre-mortal or post-mortal. Yeah, and I think the church, it, it, it's going to just become more and more and more abundantly clear that the church is on the wrong side of this issue. So they can they can certainly you know put their foot down and say this is we're not going any further. This is it. But it will become more and more difficult for them to be taken seriously if they do that. And if they make the change at this point or any point going forward, there's just going to be a lot of eating crow and a lot of acknowledging the harm and trauma that they have caused to the even extreme of people having lost their lives. And so I think it's a lose-lose situation. So just do the right thing. And, and just acknowledge that you've never really been right on this issue ever and that it's time for some serious changes. I think this issue changing would, would allow some of us to be a little more patient with some of the other changes that also need to happen because this one this one's costing people their lives. Back in 1977, before the 78 revelation, a person of color went home to the rest of their family of color. A, a gay kid goes home to his straight family who is ingrained with this uh, dogma and this rigidity of theology, and they don't have a safe place in many of these homes to go. And oh, I, I see what you're saying. Like 77 I, before the priesthood ban is lifted, if a black person goes to their home, well, they're surrounded by people who are in the same group that is being prejudiced or um, discriminated against yeah. by the church policy. But if it's a gay person, and the only gay person in their family, they go home, they're still alone. Yeah, because they're because that family's following the advice of Elder Oaks on the church newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to play the Elder Oak or the Elder Holland quote one more time. We'll end with that if you're okay with that, RFM. I am fine. Thank you, everybody, for listening, for watching, for calling in. Special shout out to you, Nicola, from England. 
Thank you so much for staying up late to watch Mormonism Live. Yeah, and we have we have six recurring donations that have happened, so three more got added. Uh, if you listen to this tomorrow, the podcast version, or just watch it on YouTube later, please go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, set up a small recurring payment. Those help us feel a little safer as we do this, because if donations come in suddenly and they're just a one-time, you really can't bank on that in any way. And so, if again, if we're trying to get to the point where we can pay our content uh, creators enough that they can continue to do this for years to come, those recurring donations really set the groundwork for us to feel confident that donations are going to survive into the future and allow us to do this for years and years to, uh, to, to come. And thank um, you, everybody, who made those donations. Really, really appreciate it. means a lot. Suzette, Todd, uh, Bob, uh, Lynn, Stephen, um, there's a Joseph and a Darlene. Um, I think that was the six. Maybe that was some of those came before the show. And I'm sorry, I'm reading a few that came in earlier. But let's finish. We appreciate every one of those. Uh, Elder Holland at uh, BYU. Take us out, Elder Holland. Extension of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And take a significant amount of sacred tithes and other human precious resources, all of which might well be expended in other worthy causes. Surely our integrity demands that our lives be absolutely consistent with and characteristic of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. At a university, there will always be a healthy debate regarding a whole syllabus full of issues. But until we all come to the unity of the faith and have grown to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, our next best achievement will be to stay in harmony with the Lord's anointed, those whom he has designated to declare church doctrine and to guide Brigham Young University as its trustees. (laughs) 